healthy city has a vibrant park system. When so much of our day-to-day life is spent indoors, in front of a screen, in increasingly smaller apartments, the value of a good neighborhood park can't be overstated. Not only have there been plenty of studies that show exposure to nature and green space is good for your mental health, and that the physical activity that often takes place in parks is important for a long and happy life, these spaces provide opportunities for a community to get to know itself. Just this month, we saw parks like Sororan in Toronto's West End show public screenings of the Toronto Raptors' winning playoff push. Public squares all over Canada, in fact, became activated by friends and neighbours coming together for a common cause. But we don't need a championship team to activate these spaces. We do need funding, maintenance, dedication, and advocacy from the grassroots up. A good park, well-loved and supported, is not just a nice thing to have in cities where not everyone has a backyard. A good park is the heart of the city. This is Spacing Radio. We are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto after a great week in La Belle Provence. I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This episode, we've partnered with Park People to share highlights from their Heart of the City conference in Montreal. This is the only national conference focused exclusively on parks across Canada. Presented in partnership with TD through the Ready Commitment, the conference brought together 100 park professionals and community leaders working to leverage the power of parks for cities. Coming up on the show, we have skateboarder and community activist Dave Boots, who takes us through a tour of Montreal's Peace Park. And Park People's Jake Tobin Garrett takes us through the findings of a national report on Canadian parks. But first, Rena Sutar is the first reconciliation planner at the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation. The board is committed to the cause of action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and Rena has the complex task of making that commitment a reality. Stand by. Rena, I want to thank you for doing this. I want to start by something from your presentation where you mentioned uh, Stanley Park and something that struck me not coming from, uh, you know, the Vancouver area um, was uh, when we talk about stolen land, sometimes we talk about it in broad strokes and kind of academically. When you're talking about Stanley Park, quite literally people were removed from their houses. Um, so it, it's it's a very real, very visceral thing. And, and as you also pointed out, not not that far, you know, not far along in the past. Mm-hmm. The last house was removed in 1952. You, you say your mission uh, is to decolonize the Vancouver Parks Board. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to know uh, if you can kind of unpack what that means. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that I can do that without kind of backing up to when I first began because um, reconciliation, when I was asked to do it, was a, an awful lot of, well, what do we do for Orange Shirt Day and what do we do for National Indigenous Peoples Day? Right. Uh, and then and then a couple of art projects and, and that kind of thing. Um, 
And as I continue to work, and I, I'm actually in the planning department, planning policy and environment, um, which I think is kind of unique for reconciliation. Usually it's in a programming or an outward facing kind of role um, and often in an inter, like an intergovernmental or a, or a, a liaison kind of role. But I being placed in planning uh, gave me the opportunity to see how others were working inside planning. So um, it's also I'm, I'm part of uh, a sort of two-part group. One is planning, the other is park development. Mm-hmm. And so I got to speak to um, project leads on both, you know, the policy level and also the um, shovels in the ground state. Right. Um, and that was really interesting to me because I was able to start uh, talking to the people who who were making those decisions and then how they were putting that work together. And the more that I started to understand about my own indigeneity and trying to work inside this environment, the more I started to see the colonialism and how everyone was approaching things. Mm-hmm. My colleague and I, uh, Lisa Walker, as we tried to figure out what our role was going to be, we figured that ideally what we would like to see is not just some things done for Indigenous people, but for all of the work to to um, take on this notion that they're in unceded territory mm-hmm. um, and to see that embedded at every single level. Right. Uh, and so to decolonize the park board for me would be if absolutely everybody in every single job started to reconsider what their own personal relationship is from whatever their family history is in the in, living in Vancouver and in Coast Salish territory, the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh territory, um, and also to consider their job. Mm-hmm. Like what do they have jurisdiction over? What, do, what choices do they have um, jurisdiction over? And then how can they do that in a different way when they start reorganizing their own relationship to the place? It just seems like such a such a huge task and you are originating this role mm-hmm. and you, you talk a, a lot about when you were you know coming up with well what does this job mean that you're saying and then i went back and then i came <laughs> up with an idea and then i went back uh that is unusual at least in my experience in in you know speaking to you know people who work in the city be they you know on the politician side or on the bureaucratic side mm-hmm. um because a lot of times it's full steam ahead yeah. uh and so uh, I think it, it was interesting to hear you um, sort of map out what this could be and uh, the process of returning and then taking a little step back uh, forward and then a little step back. Uh, what, what was that like? Honestly, uh, the more I, I set about doing this, the more I started seeing it in really personal terms. So, you know, I could see the institution doing things, but out of out of a, a defensive reaction or, um, you know, out of an attitude of, well, we have control over this land, so we're going to do it this way mm-hmm. and and not very responsive to the needs of the land or the history of the land. Um, and so as I, as I was starting to kind of personalize the institution and seeing that all of the people inside of it were individuals acting with agency, the more I realized that um, reconciliation had to be a process of healing. And, you know, Indigenous people are already in the process of healing. They have already thought about a lot of this stuff um, and those who haven't are struggling with it anyway because they can't not. Um, whereas I think that the healing that needs to happen is is largely for people who live in this society and don't realize the ways that they're being harmed and yet they uphold the system anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've actually said before that, you know, a lot of the Indian Act... Um, and the narrative around Indigenous people was was imposed. I think that the settlers, when they first came, um, 
didn't necessarily have a, a narrative about Indigenous people in their heads. I think that that was handed to them by the powers that be. I think that uh, the governmental systems were legitimately and rightfully scared that people would self-assimilate. They would see these societies, they would see that these people are surviving very well, um, and see that it was a pretty equitable society. And why would you not self-assimilate into that? If you're a person who's leaving a bad situation, which most settlers were, why would you not go into this community that looks like it's pretty whole and having a good time? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was a, a real danger for the um, for the hierarchical structures that were coming in. So the government had to say, oh, no, these people are savage. No, they're, this is a really backwards way of being. I don't think that anybody thought about it that way, but the, that narrative was very convenient. And then the the entire Indian Act was kind of built on those those principles and uh, designed to get the the native people to leave their own communities. You had to destroy the community. Mm-hmm. It's not just destroying all of the individual indi- indigenous people. You have to destroy the community because the community represents something that is fundamentally a threat to the hierarchical structures that were in place. And it seems like in this day and age, uh, you know, post the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, in a lot of political circles, uh, everyone uh, pays lip service, at least, to the commission. Uh, how do you avoid, we'll call it reconciliation washing, when you're approaching, uh, you know? Reconciliation <laughs> theater? Yeah. Um, I don't avoid it at all. Um, I actually see the politicians as being really necessary. You know, that's the system that we're in. And I don't even really need them to believe it. If they're making the right choices and allowing the rest of us to continue the work, that's mm-hmm. great. Um, and so to me, reconciliation is just a crowbar. Right. It's what allows me to do the work. Um, I, I still want to make everything else mean something. I'm really, really tired of seeing things that don't actually mean anything or people who don't mean something. Um, so I try to do it, set about all of my work, meaning something about it. Um, but I don't mind the use of the word reconciliation if it gets me to my end goal. Mm-hmm. There are times when, re- because reconciliation is kind of the thing to do, I'm able to come in and say, no, we have to do this because reconciliation. And then it gets greenlit, right. <laughs> which is fine if that's, if that's how it is. And if reconciliation ever goes by the wayside um, and that's no longer the political flavor of the month, then I will go underground, not call it reconciliation and sell it under something else. I wonder uh, if you could maybe take us through... Uh from your perspective in, in your job, uh, something that we've covered before in the magazine and on the podcast, uh, you're talking about Hogan's Alley, which was for listeners who, who maybe missed previous episodes, was, uh, you know, the, the first black community in, in Vancouver that was raised to build a, a viaduct, which now years later, the city decided we don't actually need that viaduct. What do we do with that community? Mm-hmm. And some people stood up and said, well, there was a community here before. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Um, and as well as uh, Chinese community and, mm-hmm. and uh, Indigenous First Nations community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm certain you were involved in, in the talks around that. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about your experience with that project? Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of the issues that I've been raising around reconciliation are really applicable as well to the um, racial inequities in our dealings with uh, the Hogan's Alley, the, the black community, and the people who are interested in in recognition of Chinatown as a as a culturally significant place, mm-hmm. yeah, I I think that it's really important to recognize that these communities have a history there. They have a footprint there. They have a tie to those places. Um, first and foremost, all of it is Indigenous land, but at the same time, 
not all of the people who came were invested in the colonial system that was that was put in place. Um, so a lot of these communities, you know, participated out of necessity. Um, I think that in an ideal world, they would have come here and observed the local protocols and would have been welcomed with open arms um, because that's the way of the Coast Salish people. They, they have always been welcoming mm-hmm. um, and they still are welcoming. All of their figures are, are welcome figures with their hands open, welcoming people to their territory. Also for me, coming from Haida Gwaii, I was actually born and raised in, in Vancouver, but my ancestry is in Haida Gwaii. Um, and I've come to realize late, later in life that um, I should have done some protocol. I should, I'm in someone else's territory, and if, if this was a different world, I would have done some very different protocol instead of just sort of coming down here with my social insurance number. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I live currently uh, is what is now called by some people as Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, but is dish with one spoon territory uh, in Ishinabe, mm-hmm. the Haudenosaunee, Piran Wendat. We call ourselves a city within a park. Uh, so uh, there would be uh, lots of opportunity for someone in your position, uh, you know, to try and reassess what that means in a post-Truth and Reconciliation Canada. Um, do you have any advice for our city within a park and how do we approach these green spaces? That is so tricky um, because parks in and of themselves are a pretty colonial notion that mm-hmm. we, we sort of designate. It's It's like keeping pets. We've got pet nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, you mentioned in the talk that like they're they're not environments usually. They're green spaces. They're very yeah. maintained. They yeah. are um, purpose built. And, yeah. uh, and we create them as dependent systems. They depend on us, which is really astonishing to me. That's some, that's a conclusion that I've come to a lot more recently. And like in the past couple of months, I've realized uh, someone someone called the the trees along the streets, pet trees, mm-hmm. because they just literally can't survive unless you're taking care of them and watering them. And like, they just can't survive in, on their own. Right. So they're pet trees. And I thought, oh my goodness, we've created pet nature. So advice for Toronto, I, I think um, if we rethink what a park is as something that is that we are dependent on and responsible for, that kind of paradigm shift, instead of saying, you know, this is a resource for us to access. Right. So that we can have some nature to go to. Um, start seeing it with the humility of indigenous cultures that say, you know, we completely, we completely depend on this land. Mm-hmm. We could not survive if this land was not giving us food. Um, and so shifting, shifting how, your relationship to that and saying, okay, knowing that and knowing that um, we are all a part of this, how do we take care of it? How do we shift our idea of stewardship to one that says we're responsible we're responsible for all of the life in there and for creating systems that don't need us. I think my final question is, uh, you know, with any city pro- project, but uh, especially if we want to, um, you know, have some kind of reconciliation angle to a project, uh, it's it's about consultation. We say we have to consult with the stakeholders, and the stakeholders in this case being, you know, the traditional keepers of the land. Um, I have to wonder, though, why would those communities have any trust when when the city is, you know, <laughs> knocking on their door saying like, we're sorry and now we want to talk? Uh, yeah. After all that's happened, is there is there a willingness? To, is a is there a willingness to trust? Um, how how do we rebuild those those relationships? Yeah, I think that's that's a really hard question because first of all, um, the city of Vancouver 
we were told explicitly by the local nations, they wrote us a letter while the park board was written a letter saying, we are not stakeholders, we're rights holders. Mm -hmm. Stakeholders are people who have an interest in the land. We have rights and title. Um, So that's an important distinction. And also there are so many different communities. It's really hard to tell what their relationship has been and who it depends who's on their band councils and who's in their band offices and, and what the state of that is. Um, So there's not really one answer. This is the this goes back to the problem of do we call them an Aboriginal do we call them Indigenous? Um, there's no one word because we were never one people. Right. Um, so there's that. But also, uh, I hear what you're saying about um, not trusting us, and certainly we've given them no reason to trust us. Um, and I have that one of my one of the things that I've done in um, at the park board is I've gone through old decisions. I've I've dug up old letters. I've seen letters from commissioners to the nation saying you're welcome to give your feedback at our public our, our public open house right um so yeah i mean it's it, you don't have to go very far back to see how badly we've treated them however when it's a question of rights and title which it is um it's been my experience that they will keep coming to the table because they need to they have an obligation to the land they have an obligation to their people and to their ancestry to take care of these places and so when we wake up and finally say oh right i'm supposed to talk to you uh they kind of go well it took you long enough at least that's been the attitude of a lot of the people that i've been working with and i i don't disagree with them yeah it really took us long enough and i'm really sorry and and let's try to start now because we can't start 150 years ago well i want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me Thank you. And now, let's take a walk. Okay, so, where were we? I'm sorry. Back in uh, 1880, okay, when Montreal was a walled city, uh, the main gates were on Saint Laurent Boulevard. So. People, when they'd come to Montreal, they would walk up the main gate, and this was an empty space. It was the only public space that was open, so people would congregate here. And then in 1880, they opened the first public market here, and it stayed a public market. It got renovated several times up until 1963, when they tore down the market. Yeah, so in 94, like, when nothing was around, they wanted to build Peace Park, because as I was mentioning earlier, this is David Boots Boutillier, and a group of us are standing near the intersection of Saint Laurent and René Lévesque Boulevard in downtown Montreal. This is the Place de la Paix, Peace Park, the only place in Montreal where it is legal to skateboard. It's not a skate park. It wasn't purpose-built for tricks. There's not special ramps or designated places to grind. It is simply a mixed-use space where skaters can legally do their thing. Before we skateboarded here at Peace Park, we were skateboarding in City Hall. And we would go to City Hall every day. That we City Hall was the place we loved to skate the most. But because it's City Hall and the mayor didn't like all the noise, they started kicking us out of City Hall around the same time that this park was being built. So when, when the security guards would come, we started migrating to Peace Park, which is just four or five blocks away. Dave is a skateboarder, an activist, a sort of a grassroots community liaison, the official, unofficial voice of Peace Park. He's been a mainstay at the park since the 90s, 
when he and other skaters began to take advantage of the park's flow. That skateboarders are always looking for spots, but we also like different things to skateboard for videos, but we do want one place where we can go and hang out. So, and Peace Park is ideal because it's century located. Uh, it has granite marble edges, which are aesthetically nice for videos, but they're also um, good for skateboarding. But what I really like about Peace Park is it has trees. There's, you can see there's rows of trees and you, everywhere, so there's shade here. That's why we like it, because there's a, and it has a good flow, because it's, cause it's, it's square, but it's circular in a sense where you can go around in circles, and you can, you can keep going and going. You don't have to go do a trick and stop. Uh, which is really important skateboarding to skateboarding. Even when you're building a skate park, it needs to have flow. So this place has a nice flow as well. Still, they weren't entirely welcomed. There are a lot of people in the park living rough, doing drugs, drinking hard, and getting violent. Fights were breaking out between the skateboarders and the other park inhabitants. But Dave stuck around. I was, uh, I was here every day because in 2001 I got hit by a car. And I couldn't really go skate all over the city, so I spent my days rehabilitating myself, skateboarding here in the ledges. And I had a video camera, and I started turning the video camera to the action that I was seeing in the park. He started documenting life in the park, which culminated in his 2011 Peace Park documentary. Eventually, he ended up collaborating with the Société des Arts Technologiques, or SAT, about rejuvenating the park. So I kind of became the go-to guy when it came about the park. So when the SAT wanted to do something, they knew that I was the guy that was here every day. So it wasn't like I took charge, it just kind of happened. But um, what's really interesting about skateboarders is that we actually take care of this place. We're, like in the spring, we're the first people here and we sweep the whole park before the city does. We come here with our brooms, we sweep everything. And then Dave was able to place. demonstrate, through activism and not quite legal events, that there was a benefit to having skaters in the park. Not to kick out the other inhabitants, but to self-regulate in a way. To strike a balance. A man drinks a growler of vodka over there, some skaters do their thing over here. There's equilibrium. An extremely rough-and-tumble example of Jane Jacobs' eyes-on-the-street philosophy. In this way, Dave was able to convince then-Mayor Denis Coderre and the council to legalize skateboarding in Peace Park in 2014. It cost the city nothing, and, if anything, Dave and his fellow skaters helped maintain the park. This breaking here, this is from uh, freeze and the freeze-thaw. Water gets under, it freezes, and it cracks. So what, what I've done is uh, I've fixed it all. So you can see, we've, I fixed all this, and here where there's things that broke, we put like a type of epoxy cement where we rub it in, and then these cracks here because of, we, we put a, like a plumber's epoxy. And if you come around, you'll see like this one's like was the hardest part to do because it was in really poor shape. But this is a nicer finish. That was like the first. Still. While this seems to be a good news story, the balance that's been struck is a precarious one. Dave doesn't take anything for granted. Nothing is guaranteed in life. There always needs to be a balance 
uh, and there also needs to be a, a mutual respect. So, for example, the skateboarders start abusing the space and they become a problem opposed to a solution, which they have been, then skateboarding could easily uh, return to being illegal in the park. So, yes, in that sense, I, I am uh, very cautious and I guess in some ways protective of the space and that the skateboarders use the space uh, appropriately so that we can maintain a, a harmony in the park and so the skateboarding can continue to flourish here. And finally, the center point of the Heart of the City Conference was Park People's First National Survey, really the first coast-to-coast look at Canada's parks in history. Park people noticed a lack of data about our parks and hoped to rectify that with research that could be built on year after year. Jake Tobin-Garrett, Manager of Policy and Planning at Park People, tells us what was uncovered. So, Jake, uh, Park People recently uh, debuted its uh, Canadian City Parks Report, uh, and I I believe this is kind of the first of its kind uh, for like a a nationwide survey of of park systems and uh, that was all kind of uh, spearheaded by parks people uh, with the participation of a, a surprising amount of municipalities That's from right. coast to coast. Uh, yeah. Can you unpack a, a little bit about uh, how it came together? Well, we noticed, uh, you know, at Park People for years, we've been doing research into different areas of parks, you know, the social impact of parks, um, planning parks in um, dense urban centers. And we noticed uh, doing that research that it was you know, fairly easy to find examples of what was happening in the United States or data about park systems in the United States. Uh, but it was actually surprisingly difficult to find the same about Canadian cities, you know, what's happening in different cities in Canada, especially some of our smaller cities outside of major urban centers. Uh, and we knew that there was a lot of great work happening in these cities, but there wasn't really a space that, you know, we could turn to or others could turn to um, for uh, getting this information kind of in an easy and fun way. Uh, and we knew that others had experienced this issue as well. You know, we would get often calls from media asking us questions or also um, emails and calls from city staff actually in other cities in Canada asking us if we had information about park systems in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it sort of dawned on us that this was not uh, a gap that just we were feeling. It was something that was needed uh, for you know, city staff, for nonprofits, for community groups, you know, uh, politicians and councillors who are um, uh, sort of thinking about parks in, in Canada. Right. And so you, uh, you began by approaching a you know, kind of modest amount of uh, municipalities. Uh, and I think you, you were surprised by the sort of uh, people really wanted to participate. Yeah, we um, we did approach a somewhat modest. We actually sent out the questionnaire that we developed to um, about 60 different cities across Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that we were getting, you know, a, a pretty good geographic distribution. We wanted some smaller cities, some larger ones. We, we wanted to try to get some, you know, from every province and every territory, for instance, um, our target for the first year of the report uh, was 10 cities, uh, and we ended up actually getting 23 um, in response. So that was uh, way, way beyond what we had imagined, and it just um, proved to us that you know, people really wanted to participate and saw the value in a report like this. Right. And so there, there were uh, a number of key findings, and I want to kind of take them one by one because I think they, they all... Uh uh, they, they speak not to just to the situation in Toronto or major cities, but also probably smaller municipalities right. as well. 
the beginning, and I think we can see this uh, all around the country right now, is uh, you talk about, um, you know, budgets are tightening while populations are growing. Right. And, uh, you know, we are, uh, austerity seems to be the name of the game, not just in Toronto or in, in Ontario as a province. Uh, it seems to be a, a bit of a wave. Uh, and yet we have these park systems uh, municipally, provincially, uh, and uh, people are using them. And, and uh, they... They have uh, you know certain requirements to keep them in a just sure. state of good repair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was uh, not necessarily a super surprising finding for us, but it was the loudest one that we heard from both cities that were, you know, small and large and in different places in Canada was that they were all dealing with this issue of um, feeling a real. Uh, sort of tightening of particularly their operating budgets, which are the budgets that go to things like um, park maintenance. Um, And this was really kind of compounded by a lot of pressures that um, these municipalities were seeing as well. And and these were shared across different cities, both large and small, around... um, the effects of extreme weather damage, for instance, from climate change, um, causing you know uh, uh, the need to repair parks and and from flooding and things like that much more often than than previous, um, and also from demographic changes, um, you know, different people uh, moving into uh, neighborhoods requiring different sorts of amenities and parks that weren't in there previously. Um, uh, you know, an aging population, for instance, where accessibility in parks um, becomes a, a greater a greater need. And that also requires, you know, um, uh, upkeep and, and retrofitting of parks. So there's all of this pressure happening from population growth, from demographic change, from from climate change, um, at the same time as we're not seeing um, uh, a lot of growth in operating dollars. And so that's putting a lot of pressure on these park systems. Right. You know, you, you can upkeep the park, but a, a good park also needs programming to, to be activated. That's right. Um, and that's part of uh, one of the first things to go when, when there are budget constraints. It's like, yeah, we can... We can trim the grass and we can look after the trees, but uh, you know, a park park needs things to do, ways to to bring the community together. That's right. Yeah, programming and activation is a huge um, part of what makes a park, you know, a lively and welcoming space uh, for people. I think the other impact that we've seen from the operating budget squeeze is it's actually changing a little bit how um, cities are thinking about designing their parks. So, again, at the same time as, as residents are using parks more and wanting more from parks, um, cities you know, are feeling the squeeze on the operating side and on the maintenance side, which actually impacts you know, what they put in those parks. Because, of course, you can build a park, but then you have to maintain it afterwards. So if you're putting in you know, bake ovens and all sorts of interesting play equipment and fountains, and you know those all cost incredible amounts of money to maintain after and so we did hear from one city that they've had to actually reduce their design standards in their parks to make them more easily maintained afterwards and I don't think that that's just a one-off result from the operating budget squeeze Um, and so even if we have robust capital budgets to build parks if we're not funding the operating side from our property tax base, mm-hmm. uh, it almost doesn't matter if we have a ton of capital funding to build great parks because we don't have the money to maintain them afterwards. Right. It's that classic thing of like you, you, can, you can take a picture at a ribbon cutting event for a brand new park space, but uh, we don't really celebrate just a well maintained, you know, uh, well loved park. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, um, I think uh, everybody loves to cut ribbons and come to opening day ceremonies. Um, you know, cutting the grass is something, you know, that's not, uh, 
uh, as photo op friendly, right? Mm-hmm. But it's so important. And it's also something that we don't see the effects of uh, for some time. Like if you cut back on how many times the grass gets cut or some of the maintenance for a park, you know, you may not actually notice for a couple of months, maybe a year, but then it becomes very noticeable after a certain amount of time, right? You see that wear and tear. So some of these effects of budget squeezes, um, they're not as... They're kind of insidious because they're not as noticeable as something like a budget cut to a library that, you know, all of a sudden the operating hours are, you know, from noon to four instead of all day. And you notice that right away. When you cut the park's operating budget, uh, sometimes it takes a little while for you to actually see those effects. Now, uh, uh, moving on, you you talk about uh, the need to scale up resilience. Resilience is a bit of a buzzword these days. Yeah. Uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. Specifically, when you're talking about parks and scaling up the resilience of parks, what does that mean to you and uh, what needs to happen? You're right. It's, it's definitely become a buzzword. Um, in the context of this report, we really focused in on um, resilience to... Um, uh, extreme rainfall and flooding in parks. That's something that we noticed a lot of different cities, you know, from the West Coast to here in Toronto and, and in Quebec um, are grappling with. Um, these sort of cloudburst events, they're called, where you get an intense amount of rainfall in a short period of time that ends up flooding neighborhoods, but also ends up doing a lot of damage to uh, parks. I mean, we're definitely seeing that uh, this year in Toronto with high water and flooding on the islands once again. Um, also, you know, earlier this year, there was a lot of um, water pooling in our parks that actually impacted the ability of some of the sports people, you know, who are booking those fields to actually play because there was um, like pools of water sitting, you know, on the surface of some of these fields. Right. Um, so it's impacting, you know, people's use of these spaces. So when we talk about resiliency um, to climate change in the report, we're, we're zeroing in this year on um, the importance of uh, creating parks that are resilient to these types of flood events and that can actually um, deal with rainwater by soaking it up and storing it on site uh, in a way that doesn't impact the use of the park for others through things like rain gardens and bioswales and sort of underground retention ponds, this type of green infrastructure that we can actually build into certain places in our parks that we know are prone to flooding so that we can manage and control those impacts. And those things also have positive benefits outside of the park too. There's this example that we highlight in the report in Vancouver where they built a green infrastructure plaza on a street corner. It creates a great new green space for that community, but it also uh, soaks up water from about 1,000 square meters, I think, of impervious surface in the neighborhood around it. So it's, it's dealing with actual neighborhood flooding issues at the same time as you're creating a green space, which I think is a pretty cool idea. Right. And uh, you're not just sounding the alarm with this report. Uh, you're, you're also kind of celebrating the fact that uh, 70% of the cities that you talk to uh, have some kind of sort of forward-looking master plan uh, for their park system. Uh, and uh, I think we, we heard a couple of examples from that in the conference. Uh, but uh, that, that seems like a... That seems like good news, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good news, right? Um, 70% of cities that we surveyed in Canada have a park systems master plan uh, that has been updated within the last 10 years. Um, you know, I think we'd like to see that number rise. And I think some of those plans are perhaps a little bit old on the older side of that 10-year spectrum. 
And we heard that some are, are in the process of updating them. And, and this is really important because of that growth issue. Because if we're dealing with population growth and changing use of parks, we also need to plan for the future of those parks. What are they going to look like? How are we going to connect them? You know, how are we dealing with urban development in some of you know, cities that are seeing a lot of really intense, dense development, like you know, Toronto? Um, and so these plans are really critical for getting ahead of that. Um, and we'd like to see that number rise, but certainly it was great to see that um, a lot of that forward-thinking parks planning is actually taking place. As well, uh, you kind of highlight the, both the need and the benefits of uh, you know, non-profit partnerships uh, in parks. So we're talking about the right. sort of friends of kind of things, or, or maybe uh, does that include... Uh, yeah, like, can, can you give us an example of uh, these kinds of partnerships and what they bring to a space? Yeah, I mean, there's, this is the interesting thing about park partnerships is that there's so many different scales of these types of partnerships from what you mentioned, which is, you know, the friends of, you know, X park model, which is usually uh, like a resident-led volunteer group, kind of like um, a community association or residence association that's formed around a park rather than a neighborhood uh, doing you know, putting on events for their community and sort of advocating for improvements and things like that. So that's sort of on one end of the scale. And we highlight a few examples of, of that in the report. And there's a lot of really great work in Toronto happening around, around that front that, um, you know, Park People uh, is involved in, in supporting. Um, and then on the other end, you have sort of more established partnerships that are more formalized. You know, you actually have nonprofits that have um, agreements with uh, the city to take on certain programming or maintenance responsibilities or something. And I think, you know, what we learned from the report is that cities across Canada are sort of interested in doing um, more of these types of partnerships um, and thinking about sort of layering them onto what they already do. They see the value in um, the, the different programming, for instance, that can be done when you have a community group or a nonprofit involved. But what we saw in the report was that Quebec uh, really is sort of like leading the, the game in these types of uh, partnerships, and they have for uh, a number of years. You have uh, Les Amis de Montaigne in uh, Montreal, which has worked for years on Mount Royal, uh, and the Society of uh, the St. Charles River Society in Quebec City. Um, and so these can act as, I think, models for how these types of partnerships can work well in our um, Canadian context. Right. And finally, uh, you talk about inclusion uh, and the importance of that. Uh, that can mean all sorts of things. Uh, it could mean you know, inc- increased uh, accessibility. Right. Uh, but we, we also heard uh, a lot of people uh, speak on the theme of, uh, you know, tr- truth and reconciliation mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. You speak about uh, newcomers to cities and, and that being a, you know, a, a growing demographic of park users. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, uh, how, how do we, uh, you know, what do we make of this? Uh, mm. yeah. This is a really complicated um, one, and it was it was really challenging for us to dig into this topic. You know, part of this report was trying to find. Um, data and sort of numbers-based indicators that we could use for each of these sections to kind of um, track progress over time. I mean, that's, you know, we didn't mention this yet, but that's one of the major um, goals of this report is that it will be annual and that we will be able to track these numbers that we've produced in this first report over time to see if they go up or down. Um, It's much more difficult for something like inclusion because a lot of cities aren't necessarily tracking a a lot of these numbers, you know, who they're engaging with, for instance, or um, uh, accessible parks and things like that. Um, So 
a lot of our work in this area was looking at um, kind of innovative programs and practices that uh, cities are using um, uh, to uh, make sure parks are inclusive and welcome, welcoming and, and, and open for all. Um, and uh, that entails some, I think, some really tough conversations. And uh, um, I know you spoke to Rena as well and the work that Vancouver is doing around their colonial audit um, mm-hmm. as part of their commitment to truth and reconciliation within their park system. Uh, and that's really going beyond um, things like park renaming and, um, you know, indigenous art in parks and actually kind of taking the time to do some really deep reflection on behalf of the city and the park board about their own history, their own policies, their own practices, and their own, you know, sort of management of the park system and what that actually means. And I think that's really interesting and deep work that um, could be a model for other cities in Canada when we're thinking about truth and reconciliation. Uh, I hope that, you know, the work of Vancouver is sort of spread far and wide. I think one of the areas that we would like to dive into a little bit deeper next year that we didn't have the time this year just because we have to, of course, there's so many things to focus on in, in, in parks and we had to kind of zero in on a few things each year is around the uh, idea of accessibility. You know, we do touch on it uh, in this section in the report, but I think there's so much more to talk about what universal accessibility means um, in parks and how we're going to achieve that um, for people with, um, uh, you know, um, different mobility issues, but also as an aging population. You know, right. we're going to need a lot more uh, uh, sort of universal accessibility in our park systems. Okay. Well, uh, this is a, a going to be an annual concern. You've got the right. data now. Uh, in the short term, uh, what do you do with this kind of data? that you, you've been lacking for, for a while, Canada's been lacking for some time? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so our focus right now is on, of course, sharing the report with um, the cities that participated and the cities that we hope will participate next year. I've already gotten some interest from folks who were like, hey, how come we weren't in this one? You know, um, And I think that you know we want to take a, a look at the numbers and the stories and continue to um, dig into them and see what we can pull out throughout the year through different highlighting different uh, stories and um, blog posts. And I hope that it becomes a platform for advocacy for ourselves at Park People, um, but also for community groups and residents in different cities around Canada who can now see um, you know, a little bit more into what other cities in Canada are doing and maybe get inspiration for things that they could bring to their own city. All right, Jake. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Glenn. And that is the show. Thanks again to our partners, Park People, and their partners at TD, and to you for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your landscape architect, your local documentarian, and your pickup basketball team. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. Or you can help spread the word on the book of faces, your tweets, or your... I don't know, is Pinterest still a thing? I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio. That's all one word. Or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. 
Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of the magazine on newsstands now, all about laneways. In the meantime, put the hoops back in the basketball courts and keep them there. We're NBA champs. Cheers. Cheers.